So good to see everybody today, this day of summer's last gasp. I know that some of you started school Wednesday, and others of you, the rest of you, are going to start tomorrow. So this is, this is it, the last gasp of summer. Everybody's back into the, the routine and, and everything. Some of you really looking forward to that. Uh, some of you students aren't. Um, those of you who are going to be starting or have started at the end of the service, we want to pray for y'all just as we get going on this new school year. So we're going to do that at the end of the service so nobody leave early because um, I think it's a big deal to do. All right, if you have your Bibles, open up once again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For the last four months, we've been going through this letter, looking at different themes that, that Paul brings out here, things like God's sovereignty and power, things like facing opposition to the gospel in this world, our identity in Christ, and for the last two weeks we've been looking at the return of Jesus. Here at the end of chapter 5, Paul begins to land the plane with some specific instructions to the church as a whole. And so we're going to look at these Uh, We're going to just look at two verses this morning, and next week we're going to look at some more. But uh, picking up where we left off last week, we're going to start with verse 12. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord this morning. He says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for your word. Lord, I thank you again that you have not left us here in this world to just figure things out on our own. But, Lord, you've, you've given us your word, and you've given us your spirit to be able to understand your word and and to receive truth from it. And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking you to come and do that in us, Lord, that we may see Jesus, even in a list of instructions, God, that you may be glorified in all that we do. In your name we pray, amen. You know, one of the things that you hear me say pretty often about the Bible is how it should not be viewed as simply an instruction manual. And I know that that's what a lot of us have been told growing up, that the Bible is our instruction manual for life. But when we view it that way, we make the Bible about us. And the Bible is not about us. It is about God. And we read it to get to know Him. Everything we do is just a reflection of what we know and believe about God. But, but if all we did was just viewed the Bible and read it, strictly to find out what we need to do, that would be a huge exercise in futility if we're not getting to know God. Now, with all that being said, here we are reading a text that is nothing but a list of instructions. Paul is telling us things that we need to do, and so what do we do with that? Can we still get to know God more even by reading a to-do list? Well, as a matter of fact, we can, if we read it the way I believe the Bible is supposed to be read, through the lens of the gospel. Now, for many of you, I know that if you've been going to church here for any amount of time, I know I may sound like a broken record, 
But repetition is the mother of all learning, and so I'm going to say it again. That everything that we read in the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether it's historical narrative or poetry or instruction, everything we read should point us to Jesus. And if we aren't learning something about him and what we are reading, then we're just not reading it right. I mean, Jesus even said, it all testifies of me. Now, I understand that for the vast majority of us, this is not the way that we're really used to, to reading the Bible or, or hearing it being taught. Um, we may have seen that in certain points of the Bible, the obvious parts that is, that is talking about Jesus. But most of us, if we've been brought up in church, especially any of the churches here in the religious Bible belt, uh, we've probably been in churches that tend to view the Bible more from a moralistic standpoint, that it is just an instruction manual on how, how we are to be better people, more moral type people, making it all about our outward behavior. We learn to read it really for the main purpose of managing our behavior rather than for us to, to get to know Jesus more in it all. And if that's you, then... Uh, Reading it all through the lens of the gospel is going to be new to you. But don't think that this is some new approach that someone has recently come up with. Because it is definitely not. It's actually the way the scripture was originally taught and read after the resurrection of Jesus. But we have gotten away from that over the course of history. I mean, this is the way that the apostles read and taught the scriptures. This is the way Jesus taught the scriptures. And I'm so grateful that there is this, I guess you could call it a movement right now, where God is, is bringing his people back to a recovery of the way things should be done. And I'm so glad that he has uh, allowed us to be a part of that. Wednesday after next, as Danny was talking about earlier, we start our fall round of classes. And I will be teaching the Believe class again. And a good part of that class is learning how to do this, learning how to read the Bible the way God intended for it to be read through the lens of the gospel and everything that we read. And I strongly encourage you to sign up and come to that if you haven't been through that yet because it will completely change things in an awesome way. All right, so let's look at this here. Now, I have to admit that I even still have a tendency to read Scripture through me-colored glasses. I think that's just what we naturally default to. And so when I first began thinking about how I was going to preach this, my initial thought was to do it exactly the way I've heard texts like this preached before. And so my instinctive thought was that I was just going to break each one of these instructions down, talk about what they mean and how important it is for us to do, do them, and then say it all in a way that would inspire us to just be more committed to doing these things. Now, some of you may think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, none of that points us to Jesus. It just points us to us. If we read anything in the Bible without encountering the risen Christ, then we have completely missed the whole point of it. And so once I realized what I was doing, I stopped and I prayed, okay, Lord, reveal yourself to me through this. Let me see Jesus here. And I believe he answered that prayer. 
If you are new to this church, one of the things that we harp on around here is how the gospel isn't uh, needed just for conversion. We don't focus on the gospel just for salvation and then move on to something else. It is vital for every aspect of our lives from conversion all the way to glorification. Those who are saved need to hear the gospel just as much as those who are lost because who Jesus is, what he has done, and who we are in him has implications that affect everything in life. There is not one single struggle that any of us face in this world that some truth, some aspect of the gospel doesn't have an answer for. And so when we lay the gospel down over this text right here, over these two verses that we just read, what we see here is that Paul isn't just instructing us what to do, but he is also declaring some things that Jesus has done. So he's essentially saying that this is what the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has made available to us. In other words, if you get a hold of the transformative power that is found in Jesus, this is what that can do. This should be the result of that. So let's look at each of these from that perspective. Verse 12 and 13 again, he says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that esteem them very highly, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. I believe that last part, live in peace with one another, is, is part of the context of esteeming your leaders. Because I know there are churches, man, I talk to, it, I don't feel it here at all, but there are pastors that I know that there's a lot of tension between the leadership and the people. And so Paul's saying that shouldn't exist, be in peace with one another. Now, there are a couple effects of the gospel that we see at work here. And I believe it would be safe to assume that Paul wrote these two verses here because they needed to be said. And what I mean is that there was probably some in the church in Thessalonica that were not honoring their leaders and teachers the way they should. And when you consider the makeup of this congregation, it's easy to understand why. I mean, the church in Thessalonica was a very diverse group, and the congregation there would have included both Jews and Gentiles, would have included both rich and poor, and it would also have included slaves and slave owners. And because of the culture that they lived in at that time, each of these groups would have been viewed and treated very differently. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles. The rich looked down on the poor. Everyone looked down on the slaves. They were at the bottom of the barrel in society. And because it is just God's regular MO, the way that he usually does things, it is very likely that some of the leaders in this particular church would have been those who would have not had a chance to be leaders in the culture outside of the church. It is very likely that some of those who had been slaves in the church, they were now leading some of the slave owners. Some of the Gentiles would have been teaching the Jews. Now, this would have completely upended cultural norms, which is exactly what the gospel does. 
1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And so one of the effects of the gospel is that it eliminates social class. Those who are despised and looked down on in our culture can be honored in God's kingdom. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so if this is what Jesus has done, and if we are in him, then the same thing should be evident in the way that we view and treat one another. Among fellow Christians, there should not be one iota of class, race, or economic divisions. None at all. And so if you, for whatever reason, have felt less than or inferior because of your place in the culture, whether it's because of your race or your economic situation or your family background or whatever it may be, B, you need to know that that is not who you are in God's kingdom. That is not who you are in this church. Jesus has torn down that inferior status and placed you in a position of honor in him. Not because of what you do, but because of what he has done. And so whatever it is that you may not be able to be in the culture... You can be in the kingdom. And he wants you to believe that and see your position the way that he does. Another implication of the gospel that we see in that is that it qualifies the called. In verse 13, he says, esteem them very highly because of their work. Talking about the work of leading and teaching in the church. Esteem them, not because they have a lot of money, not because they're successful in business, not because they have the right qualifications, but because of the work that they actually do in leading and teaching and and ministering to you. Respect them, bless them, honor them because of the office that they hold. Not because you like their personality, not because you agree with everything they say, but because of the calling that they have on their lives from God. You know, I think one of the biggest mistakes that churches make today is choosing leaders based more on cultural criteria rather than biblical criteria. It's making the assumption that just because someone is successful in the business world means that they should be successful in leading the church as well. Now, some of them will be. That is the case. But just because you have one does not mean you are automatically going to have the other. That's not the way God always works. Or thinking that just because someone has a bunch of ministry degrees that they're automatically going to be a good pastor. The culture doesn't qualify people for ministry. God does. God does. And if all we did in choosing leaders was to put more emphasis on cultural qualifications, then we would be putting people in place that have no business leading a church and missing some great leaders that are just sitting right out among us and not taking advantage of that. The truth is, and you see this all throughout the Bible, the ones that God usually picks to be leaders 
are usually the ones that we would least expect. Him? Really? I mean, that's what we see all throughout the Bible. I'm sure you've heard the saying, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And that is so true. And so this should be an encouragement to those of you who feel like maybe God is calling you to something, but, but you've, been, you've been holding back. You, you've been reluctant because you don't think that you're not qualified or you're not good enough. I'm telling you now, you need to let that go and just put your confidence in God and quit trying to look for confidence in, in what you have. If God called you, if he has anointed you for something, then that is all of the qualifications that you need. Everything that you think you lack for being able to do a good job in that, God will supply. He will provide that. I promise you. And I know because I'm a great example of that. Those who know me the best know what a good sense of humor God has. (laughs) They know that if he can use me, I'm telling you right now, he can use anybody. And I believe that God does this. Because it forces those that he has called to rely completely on him rather than to be tempted to rely on whatever qualifications that they have. Next, Paul says in verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. The word that Paul used here in the Greek for unruly was a term that was used to refer to uh, soldiers in the army who were... um, not following protocol or, or gotten out of line. The definition of it is disorderly, out of ranks, dis, uh, deviating from the prescribed order of rule. And so what this reflects is the fact that the gospel establishes order. Everything that God created, he designed to function according to a specific order. And when that order is followed, those things function at their absolute highest level. God designed everything to function according to a set and specific order. Everything on the micro level, like the way that cells are to function within an organism, the the process of photosynthesis, things that we can't even see with our natural eye. There is a divine order to all of those things and everything on the macro level, like the rising of the ocean tides, the changing of seasons, animal behavior, the, the orbit lines of planets up in space. Everything is to follow God's designed order, including you and me, including us. But not only is divine order uh, instilled into intended for our own personal lives, but God even placed order within the institutions that he designed for us to live in. Like the institutions of marriage and family and work and government and church. All of those things are to function according to God's order as well. And when they do... They flourish. When they don't, they fail. You see, before sin entered the picture, everything functioned perfectly according to the exact order in the way that God designed it. But as soon as sin did come, chaos came as a result, and all that order was fractured. Apart from Christ, none of us are able to live according to or follow the order that God 
has set for our lives. And so our lives are marked just with constant chaos and confusion and darkness. But the death and resurrection of Jesus made it possible for order to be restored once again. And so when Paul says here, admonish the unruly, what he's essentially saying is bring order to chaos. Bring those who are operating contrary to God's order, bring them back in line, bring them back, restore them back to order. Now, in this particular context, I believe he is talking about those who have gotten out of order of the way that God has designed church to function or maybe out of order in the way that he has designed things for our personal lives as Christians. But he is saying whatever's out of order, recognize it and bring it back into order. With the Holy Spirit now living inside of us, you and I are now able to recognize when God's order is, is not being followed, recognize when things are out of order, and he has given us the wisdom through his word to know how to put it back into order. Jesus brought our relationship with the Father in order. And as a result of that, we are now able to reflect that order in everything that we do. We are now able to bring order to our marriages, to our homes, bring order to our work, to our churches. Part of our mandate that God has given us for subduing the earth for his glory means restoring order where chaos exists. I was thinking about this and thought about how here recently we completely redid the bylaws of our church. We began seeing that, you know, the way that we have been functioning really doesn't line up with the way that God has ordered churches to function in Scripture. And so we changed it to, to line up with that. And I think that that was part of just a result of the fact that we have been focusing on the gospel, had a concerted effort of focus on the gospel for the last seven years. And when you do that and you keep filling yourself with truth after truth after truth, it's easier to recognize error. It's easier to recognize when things are out of order when you keep looking at the way things are supposed to be in order. And so that was just a result of that. And there are going to be things as we continue to do this, things that the Holy Spirit will highlight that are out of order that we need to bring into order. Pretty soon you're going to be hearing some of those things, like the fact that it would be really good if we could just be a church that is free of debt. Know that we could just pay off this building. Because I believe a church that is crippled by debt is a church that is out of order. And so that's one of the things that God is just, as we continue to, to focus on the gospel here, things will start coming back into order. Next, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted means without courage, fearful. The gospel effect here is that it drives out fear. John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love was given and displayed through the death of Jesus on the cross. And when you come to know what that love means, you trust him. And when you trust God, there's nothing else to fear. Fear, the root cause of fear, is simply a lack of trust. A lack of trust, God. If you don't trust, you're going to fear. And so how do we encourage the faint-hearted? We preach the gospel. We keep pointing them to and reminding them of the incredible love that God has for them. And we show that love to them 
in the way that we live. And then next he says, help the weak. Now, I don't know exactly if, if Paul means weak in this sense as physically, emotionally, or spiritually. be a pretty good bet that it is all the above. But the word Paul used here for weak isn't nearly as important as the word that he used for help. And it says a whole lot about what Jesus means for us. The effect of the gospel here is simply that it strengthens the weak. The word Paul used for help is the Greek word asthenes. And it means to hold fast to. To translate that simply into our word help is really too ambiguous for what it actually means. But we don't have a word in our English vocabulary that conveys the true meaning of that word. So help is the closest thing that we have. But here's the whole idea behind ostenace. If someone is weak, ostenace does not mean by helping them, you give them a book to learn how to be stronger. Ostenace means you be their strength. It means doing for them what they are incapable of doing for themselves. And if you are in Christ, you can do this for others. You know why? Because that is exactly what God has done for you through Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't help us obey God's law. Jesus fulfilled the law for us completely. Jesus doesn't just help us live holy lives. He is our holiness. He doesn't just help us in our weakness. He is our strength. That's what ostenes means. It's exactly what Jesus did for us and what he continues to do for those who rely on him. And then the last thing he says, verse 14, be patient with everyone. The gospel reveals the patience of God. That's what the whole sermon last week was about. How we raise our fist at a cruel God for allowing suffering to continue all around us. But we learn that God is not cruel for holding back his intervention now. He's merciful. He's patient. He is going to do something about all the injustice in the world. There's coming a day where all that is wrong will be made right and his wrath will be unleashed. But until that day comes, there is an offering that is being made right now. To escape that wrath that is soon to come. And while that offer is still good, God is rescuing. He is ransoming men and women all over the world. He is gathering together all those that he has purchased with his blood. And the truth is, none of us deserve that. What we deserve is to have been wiped out a long time ago. I tell people all the time, man, it's a good thing I'm not God. Because if I was, I would have wiped us all out a long time ago. It would have been easier, I tell you that. But God is patient. His patience amazes me. His patience blows me away. And because he has been patient with us, that means that we can be patient with others. Now, patience in this specific context, I don't believe he's talking about the kind of patience that you would need standing in the express lane at Walmart behind somebody who has 30 items instead of 20. 
or getting behind somebody on the loop that's going 10 miles under the speed limit. He's talking more about being patient with the spiritual growth and maturity of others. Because that's where he can really be displayed to someone. He means that when we see someone fall or mess up, we extend grace to them rather than condemnation. We extend grace to them rather than doing this whole passive-aggressive thing where we're venting about it on Facebook. You know what I'm talking about. It's all those posts that start with, I hate it when people... And then you make this big general statement supposedly aimed at no one in particular, but you know exactly who you're talking about. And the person you're talking about probably knows exactly who you're talking about. And all your friends that you have gone and gathered as a little posse to be on your side, they know exactly what you're talking about. I'm telling you right now, that is a cowardly way of calling someone out instead of going to them in a biblical way. Please don't do that. Please. It really makes adults look juvenile. Instead, do what Paul is saying here. Just be patient with them. Be patient. Because I know this. There was a time where somebody could have posted something about you. I know some of us are glad that there was a time back in the day where Facebook didn't exist. (laughs) Right? Boy, I'm glad there wasn't no social media when I, before I knew Jesus. Even after I knew him sometimes too. Aren't you glad someone was patient with you? Oh, I sure am. God was patient with you. And because he has been, you can be patient with others. And trust God that they may not be where... God wants them right now. They may not be where you want them right now. But God's grace is working on them. And the more that you extend grace and patience to them, God uses that to move them further in their growth, to change them more. You know, patience is one of those things that is probably the most requested, at least in my experience, when I ask people, how can I pray with you? So just pray that God will give me more patience. But here's the deal. Asking God to give you more patience is a wrong prayer to pray. And the reason I say that is because God can't give you more of what you already have in Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you have patience. His patience. That has been deposited into you. So it's not a matter of getting what you don't have. It's about walking in what you do have in Jesus. Instead of asking God to give you more, ask him just to help you realize what it is that you have and to give you the grace to be able to walk in that. You know, that was something that when I first realized really changed things for me. As I was able to to show more patience when I realized I have it. I have it already because of what Jesus has done. I I just need to believe that and walk in it. It's this whole idea of because Jesus has, I now can. Because he has gifted us with patience by his Holy Spirit, we now can walk in it. 
To say, I just don't have patience, is to deny the Holy Spirit. It is. If you belong to Jesus, you have it. It's just a matter of realizing that, believing it, and walking in it. You see, it's a whole lot easier to be excused for not doing something when you don't have it. Say, why aren't you more patient? I just don't have patience. Oh, okay. Christians can't get away with that excuse for patience. Because if you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, he's put patience in there. That's part of it. So he just wants you to believe that, to trust him, and to just walk in it. And because he has, you can extend that to others. And that goes for all these things that we've been looking at here. This is not esteem your leaders, admonish the unruly, help the weak, be patient, so that God will bless you more, like you more, or anything like that. Paul's message here is not, if you do these things, then God will do this. No, his message is, because Jesus has done these things for you, you now can do these things for others. This is an effect of Jesus at work in your life and what he has done. Because he has brought your life into order with the Father. Because he has driven out fear. Because he is your strength. Because he is patient with you. You can do all that as well to others. What you can't do is any of these things very well at all if you don't first realize these things that Jesus has done for you. For example, if you haven't yet grasped God's incredible love for you in such a way that that fear is no longer an issue for you and you really do still struggle with fear, then you're going to have a hard time encouraging the faint-hearted. If you don't understand what it means for your life to to have been brought in order with God, you're going to have a hard time bringing order to anything else. And so what I hope you get from this text this morning is not how much you need to be doing more of these things. What I hope you get from is that you would realize what it means for Jesus to have done these things for you. Because once you realize that, then all these other things take care of themselves. The things that Paul listed here would just be a natural result of what we believe about Jesus. And that's why I say we got to keep looking to him. We got to keep finding him. We have to keep encountering him. Because if we don't, everything else is just a waste of time. He wants us to encounter him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have made yourself available for us to encounter. God, especially through your word. And, Lord, I pray that each one of these things that we read this morning, God, first and foremost, we would realize what these things mean as far as our relationship with you. That this is what you have done for us when you went to the cross, when you walked out of that tomb. Lord, I pray that the things that you have done and what it means for us now would be our sole motivation for extending that to others. Lord, I'm just trusting you that at least one of these aspects here, God, is something that somebody needed to hear this morning. 
Maybe somebody needed to hear how patient you've been with them. Somebody needed to hear that you are their asthenes. You don't just help them, God. You are their strength. Lord, we want to just know you more. So, God, we ask you to continue revealing yourself to us. Lord, I pray for those that may be in here this morning. When I mention chaos, Lord, that's, that's the mark of their life. And it's simply because they haven't put all their hope in Jesus. It makes that relationship ordered again. So, Lord, I pray today would be a defining moment in their lives and that all that chaos will find order in you. Holy Spirit, would you come and just have your way in the remainder of this service. Do the work inside of us, first and foremost, that needs to be done so that what we do on the outside will just be a natural result of that. Lord, we thank you that that's the way you work. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.